We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. And away we go. Episode 100 of the Al Galdi podcast. It is Monday, July 12th, 2021. And yes, we have made it to episode 100. Triple digits. The century mark. A C-note. 100 episodes. My wife said to me recently, when I was up to like episode 85, you've done 85 episodes? And she said it exactly like that. You've done 85 episodes? Yeah, these bad boys pile up when you're cranking them out every weekday. And so this is episode 100. And this is a very special installment of the Al Galdi podcast. This also, by the way, is the start of another vacation week with vacation in quotation marks. I'm still doing shows this week, just not the usual five shows, three shows instead. So expect shows for Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. And if anything major breaks, then we'll adjust. Hope you had a nice weekend. Hope your weekend was as good as that of the Greek freaks. Giannis Adetokounmpo, monster performance in game three of the NBA Finals on Sunday night. One twenty one hundred. Milwaukee Bucks route of the Phoenix Suns to cut the Suns lead to 2-1. I hope your weekend was better than that of, say, the U.S. men's basketball team. Yeah, Team USA. Uh, what happened there? Team USA suffering a stunning loss in its first exhibition game, a 90-87 loss to Nigeria in Las Vegas on Saturday night. Nigeria does have seven current NBA players, but Team USA came into the game 54-2 and in exhibition games since professionals started playing in the Olympics in 1992. And Team USA blasted Nigeria by 83 points in the London Olympics in 2012. And yet, Team USA lost to Nigeria in the exhibition game on Saturday night. Our guy, Bradley Beal, he did start for Team USA, but he had just two points on one of seven shooting. Bradley Beal apparently infecting Team USA with Wizards-itis. The damn Washington Wizards. 
Yes, Team USA being infected with wizards-itis with this loss to Nigeria. You see, you put a wizard in the starting lineup for the U.S. men's basketball team, and this is what happens. Even the U.S. men's basketball team is not immune to wizards-itis. We need a vaccine for wizards-itis. Someone call Pfizer. Anyway, speaking of the wizards, one of their head coaching candidates is off the board. The Orlando Magic on Sunday naming Dallas Mavericks assistant coach Jamal Mosley as the Magic's head coach. Anyway, as I said, a very special installment of the Al Galdi podcast. Episode 100, I have for you extensive talk about the Washington football team. My reaction to the news of the weekend, team president Jason Wright telling the Washington Post that the permanent name and logo will be unveiled in early 2022. Also, we are beginning our countdown to Washington football team training camp as I am beginning a position group by position group breakdown of the team heading into training camp. The position group to be discussed on this show, the defensive line is Washington's current defensive line, the best position group for the team since the Hogs. Let that marinate in your burgundy and gold brain on this Monday. And a special guest, Kevin Sheehan, the host of the Kevin Sheehan Show podcast. He's a good friend. He's one of my favorite people with whom to talk Washington football team. Kevin and I will go in-depth on Dan Snyder, the quarterback situation, the defense, and more. We have arrived at the All-Star break in baseball, and we also had the first round of the 2021 MLB Draft on Sunday night, and so lots to talk about with the Nationals and Orioles on the show. I have for you in-depth Nationals talk. We'll do that actually next segment. Nats got swept over the weekend at the Major League-leading San Francisco Giants and put two more players on the 10-day injured list. What happened to all of the good vibes with the Nats? What happened to the rise of the Nats? Well, uh, the rise, at the very least, has been put on pause. Uh, Also, I have for you a proper Orioles segment as they got swept over the weekend. The Chicago White Sox doing the deed at Oriole Park at Camden Yards. I want to spend some time on what, to me, has been the biggest negative for the O's so far this season. And no, the biggest negative is not the Orioles' terrible record. It's not the Orioles' horrendous run differential. It's something a little more meaningful than those things. You can tweet me at Al Galdi. You can email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. This podcast is nothing without you. I mean that when I say that. So thank you to you for making this podcast the success that it has been so far. When I bring up things like where this podcast is ranking on Apple Podcasts and the U.S. football category, I bring those things up because I want to share the success with you because you are a big part of the success. You're subscribing to the podcast means a lot and helps a lot. You're taking time to give the podcast a five-star rating and write a brief review means a lot and helps a lot. You're spreading the word about the podcast means a lot and helps a lot. This is a grassroots movement, people. This is outlaw audio. We are like a militia. We're not supposed to be doing the things that we're doing, and yet we are doing them. Episode 100 is where we're at. That is a credit to you. Well, among the members of the militia, a top lieutenant in the militia, 
is one of the great supporters of this podcast, John Grandland, who actually, in an email to me on Saturday night, referred to himself as one of the great supporters of this podcast. That is true, so he might as well say it. John Grandland of Real Broker, if you need to sell your home and aren't sure to whom to turn, if you've been trying to sell your home and you're not satisfied with how things are going, if you're even just thinking about selling your home, contact my guy, John Grandland, a.k.a. John G., and understand, whereas another big-time influencer of this podcast, Ron Rivera, has position flex, John Grandland has commission flex. Position flex. Yes, Ron knows position flex. John G. knows commission flex. Not every house requires the same amount of work or money spent marketing, so you shouldn't have to pay the same fees. It doesn't make sense. It's never made sense. This needs to change, and it is changing, thanks to John Grandlin. If your house is going to sell in six minutes, don't pay 6%. Let John Grandlin put a marketing plan together for you that will maximize your home's value and help you keep more of your hard-earned equity in your pocket. John Grandlin has a menu of commission packages that you can choose from, including selling your home for free. Yes, zero commission for free. Some conditions do apply. But interviewing John Grandlin is an absolute no-brainer. He can come by your house, give you a step-by-step plan on what to do to get top dollar, and maybe even more importantly, what not to do so you don't spend needlessly, and there is never any obligation to list or sell. Do yourself a favor, call John Grandlin to sell your home, ask him about what I keep telling you about, the commission flex, and make sure you tell him that Al Galdi sent you. The phone number is 703-537-6747. You have nothing to lose. John Granlin's a great guy, big Washington football team fan, big Nationals fan, good sense of humor, very easy to talk to, and most importantly, he knows real estate. The phone number again, 703-537-6747. You can check him out online at johngsellsforfree.com. That's John G. Salesforfree.com. John Grandland, a top lieutenant in the militia. Nobody will do a better job of selling your home. And always remember, he is the master of commission flex. Position flex. Yes, Ron. What would this podcast be without your favorite thing, position flex? And what would John Grandland be without his commission flex? Well, if you are confused about how to feel about the Nationals at the All-Star break, you are not alone. Uh, There are things to like about this team. There are things to not like about this team. It was just a few weeks ago that the Nats were rolling. Now we have the Nats having lost four straight and nine of 11 going into the All-Star break. A three-game sweep at the Major League-leading San Francisco Giants over the weekend. 5-3 loss on Friday night, 10-4 loss on Saturday, 3-1 loss on Sunday. Now, also on Sunday, the National League East leading New York Mets lost at home to the Pittsburgh Pirates 6-5. The Philadelphia Phillies won at the Boston Red Sox 5-4, and the Atlanta Braves lost at the Miami Marlins 7-4. The big item with the Braves, though, from the weekend, star outfielder Ronald Acuna Jr. done for the season. A complete tear of his right ACL was suffered on Saturday. So the Nats at the All-Star break are 42 and 47. Yes, five games below 500, fourth in the NL East, six games behind the division-leading Mets, two and a half games 
behind the second-place Phillies, two games behind the third-place Braves, and the Nats have the worst run differential in the NL East at minus 15. What a bizarre season this has been for the Nats. The Nats started this season 26-35. and 35. The Nats then won 14 of 17, but the Nats now have lost 9 of 11, and now we are at the All-Star break. And I do believe that this will be a fun All-Star break if you're a Nats fan. We have Juan Soto in the Home Run Derby on Monday night, facing off with the king of the home run so far this season, Shohei Otani of the Los Angeles Angels in the first round. If MLB is smart, MLB will make sure that the home run derby begins on Monday night with Soto versus Otani. That's the first first round matchup that should be on display. In fact, MLB and ESPN should advertise throughout the day Monday, tune in Monday night and tune in from the get-go because the first matchup that you're going to see is Soto Otani. You want to sell the game. You want to market your bright young stars. That's what you do. Put Soto and Otani on display. First up, first round home run derby on Monday night. Pop a big rating. But yeah, Soto taking on Otani on Monday night. That'll be cool. And then on Tuesday night, we have the actual all-star game in which we expect to see, right, three nationals. Soto, Trey Turner, and yes, Max Scherzer, all expected to be on display in the actual All-Star game on Tuesday night. Kyle Schwarber is an All-Star, uh, but he's hurt, so he won't be playing. But Max is now an All-Star. We got that news over the weekend. Major League Baseball on Saturday announcing the selections of 10 players to the active All-Star rosters as replacements for All-Stars unable to participate in the game on Tuesday night. And among the replacements is the ace of the Nationals, Max Scherzer, despite him coming off one of the worst outings of his career. I mean, it was an outrage when Max wasn't named a member of the initial National League All-Star team. Then he goes out this past Thursday night, right, and has one of the worst outings of his career. 9-8 loss at the San Diego Padres. Seven runs in three and two-thirds innings for Max. He tossed three scoreless innings, then completely unraveled in a seven-run Padres fourth. And then a few days later, he gets to the All-Star team. I mean, you know, one has nothing to do with the other, but I just it's funny to me how this ended up playing out. But yeah, it's going to be a big next few days at Coors Field and Denver. The Nats will be on display despite being five games below 500. How often does that happen, by the way? A team is five games below 500 at the break and yet has four All-Stars. And the talk, by the way, too, has been that Max could end up being the National League starting pitcher for the game. The National League's manager, Dave Roberts of the Los Angeles Dodgers, has said is kind of an ode to the Nats. It's kind of a tip of the cap to Davey Martinez, who never got to manage the National League All-Star team because there was no All-Star game last season due to the COVID-19 pandemic off the Nats winning the 2019 World Series title might actually start Max, which would be really cool to see. But go figure, Nats five games below 500 and yet the Nats with four All-Stars, including maybe possibly a starting pitcher in the game. Well, a man who is always an All-Star is Dr. George Verghese, the medical director for the Mid-Atlantic Skin Surgery Institute of Maryland. He's a board-certified dermatologist and Mohs surgeon. The Mid-Atlantic Skin Surgery Institute of Maryland diagnoses and treats a broad range of acute and chronic skin conditions, including skin cancer. And specific to that, Dr. George Verghese and his institute offer something that's a game-changer. Superficial radiation therapy, or SRT. 
SRT is an alternative to surgical procedures for basal cell and squamous cell skin cancers. SRT is safe, effective, and non-surgical. You see, having skin cancer doesn't mean having to have surgery and the downtime and side effects, cosmetic and otherwise, that come with surgery. You have options. SRT is an option, and Dr. George Verghese and the Mid-Atlantic Skin Surgery Institute of Maryland offer the option of SRT, unlike many other dermatology practices in the area. And SRT is covered by most insurances. To find out more, call 301-396-3401. Make sure you tell them that Al Galdi sent you. That phone number again, 301-396-3401, or visit midatlanticskin.com. That's midatlanticskin.com. Dr. George Verghese in the Mid-Atlantic Skin Surgery Institute of Maryland, nationally recognized for treating skin cancer across the Mid-Atlantic region. So yes, the Nats have themselves some all-stars for Tuesday night, but the Nats don't have themselves enough players here lately anyway to be as good as the Nats need to be. The Nats have been ravaged by injury lately, and that trend continued in this three-game sweep at the San Francisco Giants over the weekend as Jan Gomes went on the 10-day injured list. Yeah, the Nats put another key player on the IL over these last few days. The Nats on Saturday placing Gomes on the 10-day injured list with an oblique strain, which he suffered in the 5-3 loss at the Giants on Friday night. The corresponding roster move to the Nats putting Gomes on the 10-day IL was selecting the contract of Jackson Reitz, from AAA Rochester, he made his major league debut in the 10-4 loss at the Giants on Saturday. Actually had a one-out pinch double in the top of the ninth in his first major league plate appearance, but you had Tress Barrera serving as the Nats starting catcher in each of the final two games in the series. So Tress Barrera and Jackson Reitz were the Nats' two catchers for the bulk of this three-game sweep at the Giants. You're facing the best team in the majors in the Giants, and your top two catchers wind up on the I.L. Alex Avila already on the I.L. Remember, he suffered the bilateral calf strains of playing at second base in a game because the Nats were so undermanned in the infield. And then Jan Gomes winds up on the I.L. with this oblique strain. And, you know, we'll see how long Gomes is out for, but you know how these oblique things can be. Uh, They may not seem super serious, but an oblique injury can linger, right? Especially for a guy like Gomes, who is a veteran, who's well into his 30s. You know, his body is already beaten up with him having caught so many games already so far this season. So I hope this isn't a lengthy stint on the 10-day IL, but I don't think anybody will be stunned if this ends up being, you know, two, three weeks until we see Jan Gomes again in a major league game. So yeah, that stunk to have that happen. And the Nats, again, Tres Barrera and Jackson Reitz. Who? What? Exactly. Tres Barrera is someone who, in late July 2020, got suspended for testing positive for a performance-enhancing drug, although he filed a lawsuit and eventually got what was an 80-game suspension trimmed to 60 games. And Tres Barrera uh, did have one of the bigger hits of the series at the Giants. The 5-3 loss on Friday night, Barrera off the bench to replace Gomes ends up smacking a one-out two-run triple off the left center field wall in a Nationals three-run fourth with runners at the corners. The two RBI, the first two regular season RBI of Barrera's major league career. So Tress Barrera gets his first two major league runs batted in. Jackson Reitz gets his first major league game and his first major league hit. It was that kind of a series for the Nationals at the catcher position. And so the Nats, already without Kyle Swerber, now without Jan Gomes, and facing a pitching dominant team like the Giants, got humbled offensively in this three-game sweep at San Francisco. The Nats in the series totaled just eight runs 
as a number of key players struggled. Trey Turner had an underwhelming series. He was an ad starting shortstop and number two batter in all three games. He went three for 13 with three singles into walk. Trey in the 3-1 loss at the Giants on Sunday, 0 for 4 with three strikeouts. Juan Soto had an underwhelming series. He was an ad starting right fielder and number three batter in all three games. He went two for 10 with two singles, three walks, and an uncharacteristic five strikeouts. Now look, Soto did have a good game on Sunday. Uh, got on base three times, one for two with a single and a couple of walks. But the single was an infield single with one out and the top of the fourth. And the bizarro pre-All-Star break portion of the season for Soto came to a conclusion with him having this sky-high on base percentage of 407, but with him also having this underwhelming by Soto standard slugging percentage of 445. You love the on base. I don't want to minimize that. A 407 on base percentage is excellent, but the slugging percentage leaves a lot to be desired. Juan Soto should be slugging well over 500. Instead, he's at 445 on the year. Josh Bell had an underwhelming series at the Giants. He was an ad starting first baseman and cleanup batter in all three games. Two for 11 with two singles and two walks. And oh, by the way, we barely have been seeing Ryan Zimmerman. Zimmerman did not start a single game at the Giants. He comes out of this series having not started each of the Nats' previous eight games. You know, the Nats just had a seven-game trip out west, four games at San Diego. That was a four-game split. And then three games at the Giants, a three-game sweep. Zimmerman didn't start a single one of those games. And I don't blame Davey Martinez for doing that. Josh Bell has been doing well here lately, but man, that stands out. I mean, for the longest time this season, right, Bell was struggling and Zimmerman never played. It felt like hit a home run or laced a double or did something good. And the two have basically switched roles. Zimmerman is scuffling and Bell's doing well these days. And Zimmerman is barely playing at this point in the season. Also, Victor Robles, another bad offensive series for him. He only started two of the three games. He was an at starting center fielder and number eight batter in the 3-1 loss on Sunday. 0 for 3, struck out on four pitches with runners at the corners and two outs in the top of the seventh. And so Victor Robles goes into the All-Star break with a batting average of 209, an on-base percentage of 322, and a slugging percentage of 305. And that's the number that really pops out, that Victor Robles is slugging, not batting, not getting on base at this clip, but slugging 305 on the season. That is atrocious. And yet that's where we're at with Victor Robles this season when it comes to hitting for power. So you have this underwhelming offensive series, in part because of the injuries, but not entirely because of the injuries. And you combine the Nats' bad offense with more bad starting pitching. And the Nats had no chance in this series. Paolo Espino, human, for a second consecutive outing in the 5-3 loss on Friday night. Three runs in three and two-thirds innings. He gave up six hits, a homer, and five singles. He had one strikeout versus one walk. Did throw 51 strikes versus 22 balls on 73 pitches. You know how I feel about Paolo Espino. He, may, he might be my favorite Nat uh, this season because it's such a great story. But he's come back down to earth here over these last two outings. What he did on Friday night, what he did the previous Saturday night, the 5-3 loss to the Los Angeles Dodgers at Nationals Park on July 3rd. Three runs in four into third innings, then got pulled from the game after a one-hour, 44-minute rain delay. John Lester was the starter for the 10-4 loss at the Giants on Saturday, and uh, Lester got shelled again. Eight runs, three earned in two and two-thirds innings. He gave up nine hits, a double, and eight singles. He issued two walks. He had just one strikeout. 
He threw just 46 strikes versus 34 balls on 80 pitches. And yes, the Nats did commit two crucial errors. And yes, some of these hits off Lester were cheapy hits, were weak contact hits. There certainly was an element of bad luck for Lester in this game, but there also was an element of Lester being bad in this game. He was not good. John Lester now, over 14 starts this season, has an ERA of 554. He has a whip of 1.74, and it's not just those numbers. John Lester, over his last four starts, has been completely non-competitive. He's given up 25 runs, 17 earned in 13 and a third innings. And it's that last number that stands out as much as anything. Last four starts combined, 13 and a third innings. That's it. When John Lester starts right now, you're basically looking at a bunch of runs being given up over the course of just a few innings. And then you got to go right to the bullpen. Again, non-competitive. You have no shot right now when John Lester pitches. And that's a problem. And it would be one thing if Lester was a young pitcher who you're trying to groom and develop. But clearly, that's not the case with John Lester. This is a guy who did not pitch well the last two seasons for the Chicago Cubs. The Nats signed him to a one-year contract. I don't see how you keep moving forward with John Lester in the Nats rotation. Now, I understand Steven Strasburg is on the 10-day injured list. Joe Ross is on the 10-day injured list. The Nats farm system, not exactly in stellar shape these days in terms of starting pitching options. So it may be that the Nats have to stick with John Lester in the rotation for at least a little while. But understand, that's not the way that things should be. And John Lester right now, it's becoming near impossible to justify this guy remaining in the Nats rotation. And then we had Eric Fetty as the Nats starting pitcher in the 3-1 loss at the Giants on Sunday. And Fetty, to me, was disappointing. Three runs in five innings, and I thought it was actually worse than that final line suggested. He gave up eight hits, a homer, a double, and six singles. He issued three walks, one of which was intentional. Now, he did have seven strikeouts. That was good. But he threw just 56 strikes versus 39 balls on 95 pitches. And he was lucky that that final line of three runs in five innings wasn't worse. Scoreless bottom of the first for Fetty came despite him issuing a leadoff six-pitch walk to Lamont Wade, followed by giving up a single to Mike Yastrzemski. Alex Dickerson lined into an inning-ending double play. If not for that, that first inning could have been, should have been much worse. Fetty gave up three runs in the bottom of the second. Leadoff first pitch single by Brandon Crawford, one-out single by Steven Duggar, and a one-out three-run homer by Kurt Casale, who just torched the Nets throughout this series. And Fetty then issued a one-out seven-pitch walk of the Giants starting pitcher, the former Oriole, Kevin Gaussman, who's having a Cy Young caliber season. And then Fetty gave up a two-out single to Mike Yastrzemski. And Fetty tossed a scoreless bottom of the third, despite giving up a leadoff double to Alex Dickerson, followed by a single by Brandon Crawford on a one-two pitch. So yeah, three runs in five innings, but you could have had many more runs allowed by Fetty in this game. He comes out of the outing with an ERA of 459 over 13 starts on the season. His whip gets bumped up to 136. Now look, Fetty for a while this season was looking really good. So I'm not just trying to write the guy off at this point, but here's the truth. Since he came off the 10-day injured list, which he was on with that left oblique strain, he's made two starts. Neither has been particularly impressive. You had what happened on Sunday, his previous outing, the 7-4 loss at the San Diego Padres 
last Tuesday night. I thought Fetty was actually better than this following final line suggested, but he still wasn't very good. Six runs in four and a third innings. And so because you had more bad starting pitching for the Nats, again, Espino Friday night, Lester Saturday, Fetty Sunday, the Nats bullpen continued to be leaned on way too much in this three-game sweep at the Giants. Now, I thought overall, the bullpen did do an admirable job. It's not like the bullpen got carved up throughout this series, but way too many innings were needed from these relievers. 5-3 loss on Friday night. Four Nats relievers had to be used to combine two runs in four into third innings. The 10-4 loss at the Giants on Saturday, they combined to allow two runs in five into third innings. That game on Saturday, by the way, a third consecutive game in which the Nats starting pitcher didn't last for even four innings. I mean, that's something else. Three straight games, you don't get at least four innings from a starting pitcher. And then in the 3-1 loss on Sunday, three more Nats relievers have to be called upon, though they did do a really good job combined for three scoreless innings. Austin both scoreless bottom of the sixth. Daniel Hudson, he looked really good in a perfect bottom of the seventh. And then Kyle Finnegan had three strikeouts in a perfect bottom of the eighth. But also on Sunday, was the Nats putting a reliever on the 10-day injured list. The Nats on Sunday putting reliever Kyle McGowan on the 10-day IL with right biceps fatigue and recalling reliever Andres Machado from AAA Rochester. So in this series, you have to put Jan Gomes on the 10-day IL and you have to put a key reliever in Kyle McGowan on the 10-day IL. McGowan pitched in the game on Saturday, gave up a one-out full count solo homer to Brandon Crawford in the bottom of the six for a 9 nothing. Giants lead. Also with the bullpen in this series, the Nats on Saturday designating reliever Kyle Lobstein for assignment. Some other notes from the Nats three-game sweep at the Giants. I do want to give credit to Starling Castro. A really good series for him. Man, is he hitting well lately. And yes, I said that. Starling Castro is hitting well lately. He was such a mess for so much of this season. He's done very well over these last few weeks. So Castro was in that starting third baseman and number five batter in all three games in the series. He went six for 10 with a double, five singles, and a walk. Starling Castro now has raised his OPS for the season by 100 points since the start of games on June 8th. I mean, Sunday was July 11th. So basically over the last month, Castro has raised his OPS for the season by 100 points. What a job by Starling Castro. His OPS for the season has gone from 608 to now 708. And look, he doesn't hit for much power. He still hasn't hit many homers on the season, but the guy is hitting doubles. Like at least there's something in the power department for Starling Castro. I mean, he only has three home runs on the season, but Starling Castro is number one on the Nats with 20 doubles on the season. You can work with that. You can live with that. And again, the OPS is up by 100 points over basically the last month. Uh, Castro in the 3-1 loss at the Giants on Sunday, three for four, had a double and a couple of singles. Now, he also had a big-time boo-boo. Top of the second, Castro, a leadoff single, but he then got picked off at first base for the third out, and yet another instance of a national making a crucial out on the base paths this season. Speaking of that, Gerardo Parra, a very eventful series for him. Uh, so Parra was the Nats starting center fielder and number eight batter in the 5-3 loss at the Giants on Friday night. Had himself a couple of hits, but he also had two base running blunders. In a Nationals three-run fourth, Parra had a two-out RBI double to center field on an 0-2 pitch, but he then got thrown out by a mile at home on a two-out single by Paolo Espino on a terrible send 
by the Nats third base coach, Bob Sendley Henley. Uh, that was a brutal moment. Then, Pora in the top of the seventh, a leadoff five-pitch walk, but he got thrown out at home in that inning, uh, this time by a mile on a Trey Turner grounder to giant shortstop Brandon Crawford for the second out. So we hated to see that. Para also committed a one-out fielding error in the Giants' three-run first in the 10-4 loss for the Nats on Saturday as he, on the left-field warning track, dropped a sky-high fly ball off the bat of Darren Ruff. Para in that game was the Nats' starting left fielder. So, yeah, man, it's been a very mixed season for the Nats so far. And again, if you want to mount the horse of, hey, this Nats team is pretty good, you can do that. You got facts to back you up. But if you want to mount the horse of, yeah, this Nats team isn't that good, you can do that. Uh, that horse will ride as well. Coming into this season, I predicted the Nats to be an 83-win team. Good enough to not be bad, but not great enough to do anything special. And I still feel this way about this Nats team. Now, I do think there's a realistic path by which the Nats do do well post the All-Star break. And that path includes the following. Steven Strasburg and Patrick Corbin becoming the pitchers they're supposed to be. Strasburg from a health standpoint, Corbin from a performance standpoint. Going into games on Sunday, Strasburg and Corbin, right? 200 plus million dollar guys. In Strasburg's case, a 200 plus million dollar guy. Those two guys had combined per baseball reference for minus 1.1 wins above replacement on the season. If just that is different, forget about everything else you want to complain about with the Nats. If Strasburg is healthy and pitching as we know he can, if Corbin is pitching as we know he can, the Nationals, to me, run away with this National League East, which remains underwhelming, okay? I know the Mets have a fairly comfortable lead atop the division right now. It's a three and a half game lead on the Phillies. But here's the bottom line. Four of the five teams in this division have non-winning records. The Phillies are at 500, 44 and 44. The other three teams, the Braves, the Nationals, and the Miami Marlins have losing records. And the first place Mets are just 47 and 40 with a run differential of just plus nine. I mean, the Mets don't scare you. To me, the Mets are a Jacob deGrom injury away from completely collapsing as, oh, by the way, we have seen the Mets do many times over the years. So if the Nats can just get Strasburg back and healthy and get Corbin somewhat right, I mean, get Corbin to where he's not pitching to the tune of an ERA above five, as has been the case so far this season, I think the Nats are very much going to be player players in the post-All-Star break portion of the season. But those are two big ifs. Strasburg hasn't been close to healthy enough over the last two years, and Corbin hasn't been close to right enough over the last two years. But if just those two guys can revert to their 2019 selves, I do believe the Nets are good enough to make the postseason this year. Uh, also, on Sunday night, we had the start of the 2021 MLB draft. The Nats had the number 11 overall pick, what was the Nats' highest first-round pick since taking Anthony Rendon 10 years ago with the number six pick in the 2011 MLB draft. And the Nats with that number 11 pick took high school shortstop slash third baseman Brady House. Uh, House is listed as being 6'4 and 215 pounds. MLB Pipeline ranked House as the number eight overall prospect in the 2021 MLB draft. Look, I'm not going to sit here and pretend like I've scouted Brady House, okay? I mean, he looks good. All right, we'll see what he ends up being. But here's what I do know. The Nats need this pick to be a hit because the Nats in recent years have gotten next to nothing 
out of their first round picks. You know, the Nats for a few years had such a great run when it came to first round picks. 2009, the Nats took Steven Strasburg with the number one overall pick and took Drew Storen with the number 10 overall pick. 2010, the Nats took Bryce Harper with the number one overall pick. 2011, the Nats took Anthony Rendon with the number six overall pick and took a pitcher, Alex Meyer, with the number 23 overall pick, which was the compensatory pick for the Nats losing Adam Dunn in free agency to the Chicago White Sox. What the Nats do with Alex Meyer? The Nats traded Meyer to the Minnesota Twins for outfielder Denard Spann in November 2012. Meyer ended up becoming nothing. Spann was a really good outfielder for the Nats for multiple seasons. That run, 2009 through 2011, helped to build the foundation for the Nats becoming good beginning with that 2012 season. Since then, though, the Nats' first-round picks have mostly not worked out. 2012, the Nats took pitcher Lucas Giolito. He has worked out, but not for the Nats. He has worked out for the Chicago White Sox. 2014, the Nats took pitcher Eric Fetty. We're still trying to figure out what he is. 2016, the Nats took two players in the first round, infielder Carter Keeboom and pitcher Dane Dunning. Keeboom's been a total flop. Dunning was part of the trade package, along with Giolito and another pitcher, Reynaldo Lopez, that the Nats sent to the White Sox for Adam Eaton. 2017, the Nats took reliever Seth Romero. He's been a flop. 2018, the Nats took pitcher Mason Denneberg. He's dealt with a bunch of injury issues. 2019, the Nats took pitcher Jackson Rutledge. We'll see what he ends up becoming. 2020, the Nats took pitcher Cade Cavalli, who looks like a phenom right now. In fact, Cavalli on Sunday was throwing fire at the 2021 MLB All-Star Futures game at Coors Field in Denver. Get this, Cavalli at one point in the All-Star Futures game had thrown the 15 fastest pitches in the game, the pitches ranging from 98.7 miles per hour to 100.4 miles per hour. But the point is, the Nats, off a really nice run of first-round picks, have not hit with near the frequency on first-round picks that is needed in order to sustain success. The Nats have got to get back to hitting on their first-round picks. Cavalli right now looks like a hit. I mean, we'll see what he ends up being at the major league level. I know there's a lot of excitement too about Jackson Rutledge, although he isn't tracking nearly as well as Cavalli is. But this kid, Brady House, shortstop slash third baseman, let us hope that he becomes a prize prospect because right now this Nats farm system is very much lacking when it comes to top prospects. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. 
All right, we move now to the Washington football team. And before we get to the start of my position group by position group breakdown of the team heading into training camp, I'm going to be talking about the defensive line. And before we get to our special guest, Kevin Sheehan, host of the Kevin Sheehan Show podcast, I do want to address the Washington football team news of the weekend. Washington football team president Jason Wright saying that the team's permanent name and logo will be revealed in early 2022. He said this to Washington football team insider Nikki Javala of the Washington Post in an article that came out on Saturday. Also said that the franchise will be retaining burgundy and gold as a team's colors. That has been previously reported, and that to me is an absolute no-brainer. The burgundy and gold colors should never, ever go away unless the team switches to maroon, black, and yellow, as Jim Zorn once told us. You know, they all get involved, and they all got their gear already, and so they're going to be all colored up in, uh, in the maroon and black and yellow. Yes, thank you, Coach Zorn. Uh, anyway, what's notable about Jason Wright saying that the team's permanent name and logo will be revealed in early 2022 is that this is the most specific timeline that we've received regarding the announcement of the permanent name. We have known that Washington football team will be the name for a second consecutive season this coming season. We also have known that 2022 would be when the permanent name would be announced. Now we know early 2022. Although early can mean many things, right? I mean, does early mean January 2022? Does early mean February 2022? Does early mean March 2022? Will the permanent name be announced, say, the week of the Super Bowl? Will the permanent name be announced later in February, which is traditionally a slow month for sports? Will the permanent name be announced when the new league year begins in March? All kinds of possibilities. But putting aside the when, here's what's really interesting to me to think about. Given that Jason Wright now feels comfortable saying that the permanent name will be announced in early 2022, does that in fact mean that the team has decided on its permanent name. I mean, if here in July 2021, you do know that by early 2022, you'll have the permanent name and logo good to go, does that mean that you have the permanent name and logo already decided? I think that's very possible, although I would say it doesn't have to be the case. I think at the very least, though, the team has things narrowed down. That much, I think, is safe to say. And the team believes that whichever name is chosen will be good to go legally by early 2022. So it doesn't have to be that the team has settled on a permanent name and logo, but I think it is that the team has settled on just a few potential permanent names and logos. And whichever permanent name and logo are chosen, the team is confident that that name and that logo will be good to go legally by early 2022. I have always believed that this has been, say, a three or four team race. All of these name candidates that have been out there, I've never felt that this truly was a process in which anything was possible, right? That's why like all this fan involvement stuff, which is fine, to me is a lot of window dressing. I don't think you, me, or anyone else outside of the organization truly is going to inject a name into the process that the team isn't already considering. Now, I think fans can influence which name ultimately gets chosen, but it's not like if you're, you know, laying in bed in the middle of the night and all of a sudden some magical name comes to your mind and you submit that name to the team that the team is going to be, oh, wow, let's go with this name. Like, no, I think the team for a while has had, say, three or four names in the mix, and that's what the mix has been. I think Dan Snyder has had a few candidates in mind, and this process has been about picking 
one of those candidates. Now, which candidate is getting the nod? Who knows? But I don't believe, I can't believe that all of those ridiculous names that were out there a few months ago were legit contenders. Remember, emerging on April 14th was that Washington football team season ticket holders had received a variety of versions of a survey from the team pertaining to the name. Maybe you yourself got one of these surveys. The surveys asked for season ticket holders to pick their two most preferred names from lists of potential names while making clear that those names on the list weren't final candidates for the permanent name. But remember the names on these surveys. I mean, these names are ridiculous. The Washington Aviators, the Washington Beacons, the Washington Belters, the Washington Wayfarers, the Washington Ambassadors, the Washington Griffins, the Washington Armada, the the Washington Rising, the Washington Swifts, the Washington Rubies, and then there were the soccer names. First City Football Club, Washington, D.C. Football Club, Washington Capital City Football Club. Dan Snyder is truly a fool. Jason Wright is a fool. If any of those names end up being the permanent name, I don't believe this to be the case. I think the names that probably have been in play are Washington Football Team, Washington Football Club, Warriors, and maybe Red Wolves. That's my guess. As I have said, my three favorite options are Warhawks, Red Wolves, and Warriors. I have no interest in Washington Football Team, Washington Football Club, or any other soccer-like name as the permanent name. This is an NFL team, not an MLS team. This is a team that is competing for a spot in the Super Bowl, not a spot in the Euro Final. But yes, early 2022, that now is when we are to expect the permanent name and logo for the team known, at least for now, as the Washington Football Team. All right, my friends, the time has come. We now officially begin our countdown to Washington football team training camp. As the classic song from Europe says, it's the final countdown. It's the final countdown. Yes, that's right. It's the final countdown. If you know your 1980s heavy metal slash hard rock, you know Europe. You know the final countdown. Now begins the final countdown to Washington football team training camp in 2021. Washington football team training camp will begin on Tuesday, July 27th in Richmond. will take place in Richmond through July 31st. Then we'll move to the team facility in Ashburn. And so starting with this installment of the podcast, episode 100, I am giving you a position group by position group breakdown of the team heading into training camp. We'll be going in-depth on one position group each show. The position group for this episode 100 is the most special of Washington's position groups, the defensive line. So on this most special episode, the most special position group, the defensive line. And here's how we're going to do this. Three questions. The three biggest questions for the position group for training camp, excluding injury. The injury question is a question for every position group. Does everyone come out of training camp healthy? Okay, fine. We get that. What I want to do is give you the three biggest questions for each position group for camp. So questions to which we'll have answers by the end of camp. Not questions for the upcoming season, questions for camp. So here we go. The defensive line. Question number one, 
for the Washington football team's defensive line in training camp. Is this unit poised to get to an even higher level? No defense in the NFL last regular season demonstrated as much improvement as Washington's defense did. This is undeniable. Washington improved in every meaningful defensive category, and the improvement was mostly massive. Take a listen to these rankings from the 2019 regular season and then the 2020 regular season for Washington. Total defense per Football Outsiders DVOA metric, 2019, 27th in the NFL, 2020, third in the NFL. Points allowed per game, 2019, 27th in the NFL, 2020, fourth in the NFL. Team sack percentage, 2019, eighth in the NFL, 2020, fourth in the NFL. Third down defense, 2019, 32nd in the NFL. Dead last, 2020, sixth in the NFL. Opponents yards per play, 2019, 21st in the NFL. 2020, second in the NFL. Red zone defense, 2019, 24th in the NFL. 2020, fourth in the NFL. You get the idea. I said going into the 2020 season that the season was going to be a referendum on all of these highly touted and well-regarded Washington defensive linemen. All of these first-round picks especially. Greg Minuski gone, the 3-4 base defense gone. If all of these guys still were part of a defense that wasn't that good, then we really had to wonder if these guys themselves just weren't that good. Well, these guys ended up being a part of a defense that was really good, and these guys are really good. So now what? How much better can this defensive line be? Washington's defense was not good in the loss to the Tampa Bay Buccaneers at FedEx Field in a wild card game this past January. The defensive line clearly was a part of that. So there is another level that this defensive line and this defense can get to. Is that level arrived at this season? Washington and Chase Young, Montez Sweat, Jonathan Allen, Deron Payne, Matt Ioannidis, and Tim Settle has a collection of defensive linemen that is the envy of most teams in the NFL. The only teams to me that you could argue have better defensive lines than Washington's defensive line are the Bucks and the Pittsburgh Steelers. Steelers' defensive line is loaded with TJ Watt, Alex Highsmith, Cam Hayward, Stefan Tuitt, Tyson Alualu. But Washington's defensive line is right there with the Steelers' defensive line and the Bucks' defensive line. Do we come out of training camp feeling like Washington's defensive line is going to take that next step? Do we come out of training camp feeling that this Washington defensive line will be even better in 2021 than the defensive line was in 2020, especially when you consider the return of Ioannidis. Remember, Washington's defense did what it did last season, despite not having Ioannidis for most of the season. He is, to me, the team's best pass-rushing interior defensive lineman. Washington placed Ioannidis on the reserve-slash-injured list last September 29th due to a torn left biceps that was suffered in that 34-20 loss at the Cleveland Browns in Week 3. But it really is something when you look at what Ioannidis has done as a pass rusher versus what John Allen and Deron Payne have done as pass rushers. Through Week 2 of the 2020 season, Week 2 of last season was when Ioannidis played his last full game of the 2020 season. Here is how Ioannidis compared with Allen and Payne since the start of the 2018 season, which was Payne's rookie season, okay? 
So over that time span, in terms of regular season games, Ioannidis played on 290 fewer defensive snaps than Allen did, and on 361 fewer defensive snaps than Payne did. And yet, Ioannidis led all three players in sacks at 17.5, and led all three players in pressures per sport radar at 56. John Allen, despite having 290 more defensive snaps than Ioannidis had, had 10 fewer pressures. Payne, despite having 361 more defensive snaps than Ioannidis had, had 31 fewer pressures than Ioannidis had. The numbers scream. Matt Ioannidis, at least in terms of pass rushing, has been Washington's best interior defensive lineman. Ioannidis is going to be back for this coming season, hopefully stays healthy. And then think about this with Washington's defensive line. Is this the best position group that Washington has had since the Hogs? Yeah, I said it. Is Washington's defensive line right now the best that any position group has been for Washington since the Hogs? The Hogs, the greatest position group in Washington history, an offensive line that through various configurations paved the way for four NFC titles and three Super Bowl titles in 10 seasons, 1982 through 1991. The three Super Bowl titles, of course, one with three different starting quarterbacks and three different groups of running backs. The posse was great, Art Monk, Gary Clark, and Ricky Sanders. But the number one position group in franchise history is the Hogs. Is Washington's defensive line the best? that a Washington position group has been since the Hogs. This coming season will be very telling in that regard, but it says something that I can ask a question like that, and I'm not laughed out of the room. You know, the notion of Chase Young, Montez Sweat, Jonathan Allen, Deron Payne, Matt Ioannidis, and Tim Settle being a part of a unit that is perhaps Washington's best overall unit since the best unit in the history of the franchise. Very high potential with this group, very high expectations for this group. How are we feeling about this group coming out of training camp? Question number two for the Washington football team's defensive line in training camp. Will Washington get a contract extension done with Jonathan Allen? So this coming season is going to be Allen's age 26 season. And yes, a contract season. He is set to play under the terms of the fifth-year option in his rookie contract. Washington exercised that option in April 2020. Now, I know that Washington and Allen having not agreed on an extension yet is bothersome to some of you, and I hear you, but the team and the player not having agreed on an extension doesn't mean that an extension won't be happening. Washington in 2015 signed Ryan Kerrigan and Trent Williams to big money contract extensions. Listen to when those extensions were signed. Kerrigan's late July, Williams's late August. We're now in mid-July. So to me, there remains reason to think that a contract extension with Allen can happen. What's tough is where we're at with the salary cap. It went down for this coming season. The cap is expected to skyrocket in the coming seasons. So if you're Jonathan Allen, it may well make sense to wait a year to do a long-term deal, especially given Washington's penchant for franchise tagging players, especially in back-to-back years. Giving those players more leverage, see our friend Brandon Sheriff. Brandon Scherf. Yes, Brandon Scherf. Thank you, Commissioner. But here's something to be aware of with Jonathan Allen. 
He had a very good 2020 season. I don't think Washington fans give Allen enough credit for the season that he had in 2020. First of all, Allen in the 2020 regular season was number five on Washington in defensive snaps at 77.42% for a Washington defense that made major across-the-board improvements from the 2019 regular season, as I outlined earlier in this segment. Allen in the 2020 regular season had an overall grade per pro football focus of 80.3. For comparison's sake, Deron Payne's overall grade for the 2020 regular season per PFF was just 68.2. And then there's this. Allen in the 2020 regular season had the best pass rushing season of his career. Now, you get no sense of this if you just look at Allen's sack total, which was two. Allen over the previous two regular seasons combined, so 2018 and 2019, totaled 14 sacks. So if you just look at the sack numbers, you say, Goldie, what are you talking about? 2020 was Allen's best pass rushing season. Well, you got to look beyond sacks. Allen's pass rush win rate per pro football focus in the 2020 regular season was outstanding. Pass rush win rate measures the percentage of plays on which a pass rusher beats his blocker, regardless of whether that rep results in a pressure or a sack. Consider the following. Allen, over the 2018 and 2019 regular seasons, per pro football focus, ranked tied for number six among all interior defensive linemen with 14 sacks, but also ranked just number 39 among all qualified interior defensive linemen in pass rush win rate at 10.2%. Allen in the 2020 regular season for PFF ranked tied for number 49 among all interior defensive linemen with just two sacks, but also ranked number eight among all qualified interior defensive linemen in pass rush win rate at 17%. Allen's high sack totals, but low pass rush win rates in the 2018 and 2019 regular seasons suggested something, and that something is that his sack totals weren't sustainable. Conversely, Allen's low sack total, but high pass rush win rate in the 2020 regular season suggests that Allen was an excellent pass rusher last season and that the lack of sacks is misleading. So which Allen is the real Allen in terms of pass rushing? The high sack total, lesser pass rush win rate guy, or the higher pass rush win rate, lower sack total guy? Hard to say. But understand, John Allen last regular season was one of the best interior pass rushers in the NFL. And of course, Jonathan Allen is a leader. Accountable, dependable, no drama nature. John Allen has been a true leader for Washington. He is a big part of the culture change. I hope that an extension gets done. I'm not sure that it happens, though, especially again, given the likelihood that Washington uh, would probably franchise tag Allen next offseason. Brandon Scherf. Exactly, Commissioner. And then question number three for the Washington football team's defensive line in training camp. Is there quality depth at edge rusher? You know that Chase Young and Montez Sweat were great last season. Understand just how good they were. Chase Young, overall grade for the 2020 regular season per pro football focus of 87.2, number six among all qualified edge rushers in the NFL. Montez Sweat, overall grade for the 2020 regular season per PFF of 79.7, number 10 among all qualified edge rushers in the NFL. Washington had two of the top 10 edge rushers in the NFL last regular season per pro football focus. Now, I know 
Chase didn't exactly kill it in the loss to the Bucks at FedEx Field in a wild card game. But still, Chase had an excellent rookie season. Remember, he won Associated Press Defensive Rookie of the Year for the 2020 season. Both Chase and Montez played a bunch last season, during which Washington's top two backup edge rushers were Ryan Kerrigan and Ryan Anderson. Well, both of those guys are gone. And to NFC East rivals, the two backup edge rushers named Ryan each left for a division rival. Kerrigan signing with the Philadelphia Eagles, as it turned out that Washington had no interest in re-signing him, at least how he tells the story. Anderson signed with the New York Giants. And so what Washington now has as its apparent primary backup edge rushers are three seventh-round picks over the last two years. James Smith-Williams, William Bradley King, and Shaka Tony. Let's examine each guy. So James Smith-Williams, Washington with the second of its two seventh-round picks in the 2020 NFL draft, took James Smith-Williams out of NC State. The pick that Washington used on James Smith-Williams was acquired in March 2019 when Washington traded a six-round pick in the 2020 draft to the Denver Broncos for quarterback Case Keenum and a 2020 seventh-round pick. Washington lists Smith-Williams as being 6'4 and 265 pounds. Smith-Williams played some last season. He, in the 2020 regular season, did play on 9.38% of Washington's defensive snaps. And he ranked number three on the team in special team snaps at 63.24%. And Smith-Williams is an interesting story. There's an element of the unknown with this guy. He, in 29 career games over five seasons at NC State, totaled just eight sacks, dealt with a number of injury issues, but the guy is smart. He has a degree in business supply chain management from NC State and had a standing job offer from IBM whenever he was ready. So James Smith-Williams is super smart, as Joe Gibbs would say. He's super smart. Yes, exactly. Thank you, Coach Joe. And Smith-Williams underwent a massive physical transformation under the guidance of the NC State Strength and Conditioning Program, put on an estimated 70 pounds, which is very hard to do. And yet James Smith-Williams apparently did that. Uh, William Bradley King, uh, the Washington football team with the first of the team's three seventh-round picks in the 2021 NFL Draft, took William Bradley King out of Baylor. He is one of many athletic freaks selected by Washington in the 2021 draft. Bradley King, with what he did at the Baylor Pro Day, earned a relative athletic score, RAS of 9.18, which qualifies as great. Relative athletic score, I talked about that a bunch coming out of the 2021 draft. Kent Lee Platty, a Navy veteran and a guy who does work for Pro Football Network, he came up with this relative athletic score metric, which grades a player's measurements and NFL scouting combine slash pro day metrics on a 0 to 10 scale compared to his peer group. And the idea, and it's a good one, is to give context to all these things we hear about every draft season, the player's height, weight, 40-yard dash time, bench press, vertical jump, broad jump, etc. Well, William Bradley King rated very well in this regard. Again, 9.18. Bradley King had an elite season in 2019 for Arkansas State. He only played for Baylor for just the 2020 season, but this is a guy with real potential. Washington obviously thought enough of him to take him in the seventh round. Also in the seventh round of the 2021 draft was the Washington football team selecting Penn State edge rusher Shaka Tony. Now, Tony is undersized, but he too is an athletic freak. And going back to the relative athletic score, Tony, with what he did at the Penn State Pro Day, ended up ranking number 72 
out of 1,361 defensive end prospects in relative athletic score from 1987 to 2021. Tony at the Penn State Pro Day ran a 40 of 4.51 seconds. So yes, he's undersized, but yes, he has freakish athleticism. And Shaka Tony at Penn State was productive and a leader. Tony in 47 games over four seasons at Penn State, 20 and a half sacks, eighth in school history in terms of career sacks. And Tony, this past season for Penn State, what was his redshirt senior season, started all nine of Penn State's games and was a team captain. It's going to be very interesting to see how our friend Ryan Kerrigan does do with the Eagles, because the Eagles signed Kerrigan for pennies. Like I said, at least the way Kerrigan tells it, Washington had zero interest in ever resigning Kerrigan. Kerrigan has said that he was told by Ron Rivera and Dan Snyder at the start of free agency that the team was not going to be resigning Kerrigan. So before his market ever developed, before Washington ever did anything else at edge rusher, Washington told Kerrigan, uh, bye-bye, pal, we're done with you. We'll see if Washington is proven correct on this. For now, a bunch of unknowns behind Chase Young and Montez Sweat in terms of edge rushers. James Smith-Williams, William Bradley King, Washington, by the way, must lead the NFL in edge rushers with hyphenated last names, and Shaka Tony, who out of that group can provide legit depth behind Chase Young and Montez Sweat. So there you have it, the start of my position group by position group breakdown of the Washington football team heading into training camp. The countdown is on. The final countdown. It's the final countdown. Yes, exactly. Now to our special guest. All right, as we roll along here on episode 100 of the Al Galdi podcast, very pleased to welcome to the show right now a man to whom plenty of you listen all the time. He is my buddy, my pal, my brother from a different mother, Kevin Sheehan, the host of the Kevin Sheehan Show podcast and of the Kevin Sheehan Show on the Team 980. Kevin, my friend, it's nice to have you on. How are you? Galdi, Galdi, Galdi. It's my pleasure. we, We should be doing this more often. I had Zabe on the podcast the other day, and, he, and you know he did one of those things where he says, "Let's do a home and home." <laughs> as you and I, as you and I both know, he's a man of great ideas, lesser on the execution front. Yes, exactly. It sounds good in the moment, no question, but the uh, the actual right. doing of the action is a is a different story. But he means well. We get that. We love Zabe. Uh, no, that's great that you had him on. I actually was on his podcast not long ago in in the van. Have you seen this van that he has? This podcast van? Uh, yeah, I sat in that van one day. You know, with him and with Carol Maloney, we had a great time. And he loves that thing. Yeah, that's his that's his home away from home. That's his refuge. Well, yeah. uh, let's begin with the thing that every Washington football team fan has been thinking about. And that is, if Washington had signed Kirk Cousins to a long-term deal, at, no, I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> but uh, the news that came out on Saturday, Jason Wright telling the Washington Post that a permanent name and logo will be unveiled in early 2022. Does that say to you that those things already have been determined? Well, I mean, I think we've sort of been thinking that it was going to be in 2022. Uh, yeah, I think they have it. I definitely think they have it. There's, there's no way they can announce it, which would be now roughly five, you know, six months from now, minimum, maybe seven or eight months, which would still be, you know, considered early 2022, if they don't have it. I think they probably have it and know what it is. 
the Dan Snyder stuff of the last few months, uh, first him buying out the disgruntled minority partners with help from the NFL with that debt waiver. You have, of course, the outcome of the Beth Wilkinson investigation. It's so funny now, the idea that Dan was going to be out as owner of the team. I mean, it's almost laughable that that ever came up. It's almost like he's more powerful than ever before. What do you just make of like that aspect of it? Like all of the chaos of the last 12 months, he's not only surviving the chaos, but he's actually stronger coming out of the chaos than he was going into the chaos. I thought for starters, the Wall Street Journal piece was embarrassing. It was embarrassing journalism for you know a paper like that. It was a puff piece. It was set up. And the thing that's so disturbing to me, and it continues to be the most disturbing thing, as like, you know, we compartmentalize and say, here's all the Snyder stuff. And then, oh, by the way, the football thing is going much better, which it would appear that it is. I mean, we can say both things simultaneously, but it's just how completely detached from reality he and his public relations groups you know, tend to be. I think it's more him. I'm sure they're giving him different advice. But to suggest that he thinks that we'll believe that he hasn't been involved enough and that it would be well received for us to believe that he's going to be involved more and that would be an exciting thing is an unbelievable delusion. Like, no, but 97% of this fan base wishes that he weren't the owner anymore. And they don't get that. They still don't. (laughs) It it, it blows me away at how, you know, he actually wants, you know, the quote was, we need to be involved. We need to be more involved. We have to look at the past and do things different because we haven't been as involved. I mean, seriously? Well, whatever. Um, You know, I I read Barry's Verluga's piece this morning, which says, you know, essentially what Tommy has been saying for years, which is, you know, there's this Surgeon General's warning, which is as long as he owns the team, you know, it can always get really bad again. But at the same time, I'm intrigued and I'm not going to say excited, but I'm, I'm intrigued by the football operation and what it can produce over the next year or two with better coaches with more discipline, with maybe a better culture, and with better players. So you brought up that Wall Street Journal puff piece. It is so interesting the extent to which New York newspapers have broken news, had news, on the Washington football team over the last year. The Wall Street Journal, the New York Times. We know that Dan now has his own PR team that's based in New York, and you know presumably that's what is uh, leading to all this. But where is this coming from exactly? Like this idea of, hey, let's use New York newspapers to get our side of the story out. That just seems bizarre and and almost random. They know they can't use the post. And Rock Nation and MWW, the two um, uh, PR firms that they've been using now for a year and a half, two years since they had uh, Maury Lane's group, which, you know, uh, out of Memphis was tied to Fred Smith and all that. Um, They, um, this is their, their angle. Like, stay away from the post. You'll never get a fair shake. um, And you'll never, ever get anything teed up for you. And we saw what the journal did recently. I mean, that really was an embarrassing piece of journalism. I mean, the fact that they wrote some of the things that they wrote in there and there was no pushback. I'm sure it was the quid pro quo for getting the Tanya Snyder story, you know, which, you know, I guess was a big story, I guess. But, um, 
Yeah, that I mean that that's them. I had somebody from who's close to the league and has been close to this team previously tell me that last week was a true disservice to Dan Snyder. That the league should have and he should have asked for a legitimate suspension, three three months, six months, whatever it was, so that it felt like there was more teeth to the punishment. The fact that he didn't get suspended made everybody react the way they did. The $10 million was perceived as pocket change for him, even though it was the largest fine ever imposed on a team. And he made it very clear, you know, having his PR people and lawyers reach out to tell everybody he wasn't suspended. He wasn't fine. And by the way, he wasn't suspended. They should have announced it if you were. It would have been beneficiary, beneficial to both him and the league. But he, he had his people calling. Tommy got a, an email. Uh, the $10 million fine was not Dan Snyder's fine. It was the team's fine. Like, dude, you won big. Just, you know, let let, let sleeping dogs lie. Like, you you already won big. You don't need to win big, uh, bigger than you've already won. But um, I, I, I just, the whole thing is odd. And at the same time, like, we will, you will, I will, as we approach training camp, focus on the football thing. But the two are linked. And they will always be linked as, as long as he owns the team. Because what we've seen many times over the last two decades is always just sitting there. And that is him getting involved and, you know, f***ing everything up again. Yeah, there's no question about that. We're talking with Kevin Sheehan. So with this suspension that's not really a suspension, what is this exactly then? Where is this coming from? Where the NFL and then he in his own statement announced, well, uh, I'm going away for a while and I'm going to handle the new stadium and other matters. And my new co-CEO, who also interestingly got named to that position two days before the outcome of the Beth Wilkinson investigation came out, she's going to run the team on a day-to-day basis. Like, If this truly isn't a real suspension, how could you announce this thinking that people aren't going to presume this to be a suspension? Well, it wasn't a suspension. Again, I think the, if he had actually been suspended, the league would have announced that. It would have been much more beneficial for the league. And as this person told me for Dan, even though he's too numb to understand it, um, for them to have said he's been suspended for three months or six months and then described what that meant. I don't know what the, you know, handling the big picture stuff versus the day-to-day means. It's another way to sort of prove how diverse and meaningful the diversity is within the organization. I guess to have a female co-CEO that's handling day-to-day, even though it's his wife, and nobody really believes that he's not going to be intimately involved in the day-to-day. But it's a good question. You know, they're the ones that put it in their statement. The league really didn't put it in their statement. Yeah, it's buried deep in the league statement. Yeah, I don't know why... They made a whole paragraph out of it. They meaning, you know, the football team. But I, I, once I read it, I remember thinking immediately two weeks ago or whenever it was, uh, if he had been suspended, they would have said it. They, there was just too, there was too much. The, the league isn't stupid on these matters. They would have looked much different had there been a suspension, even though I don't even know what a suspension suspension of an owner actually means. So just to put a wrap on this, do you think this genuinely is Dan deciding to step away? Or do you think the league talked to him and said, why don't you go ahead and step away? Like, where do you think this came from? 
I honestly have no idea. I mean, he's not stepping away. He's involved in right now outside of the football operation, the two biggest, you know, um, the, the two biggest things they're working on, which are the stadium and the whole new name thing. Yeah. So, I mean, he's been involved in that anyway recently. Um, I don't know how much he can help on the stadium front because I don't think any of these three jurisdictions really like him. Um, but I think he's intimately involved in that and on the new branding you know, front. So if he were truly suspended, he wouldn't be able to work on any of those things. All right, let's get to actual football. This is, of course, the time of year in which optimism reigns supreme. Uh, I know you just referenced kind of the extent to which you're optimistic, but as you look at this team for this coming season, what are your thoughts? What are your feelings about what kind of a 2021 this is going to be for Washington? Well, it's funny because I was uh, starting to sort of just jot down some notes for the next show. Um, and this time of year as we approach training camp, if we go back and look at the conversations we've had over the years, all of us, you know, fans and people like you and me over the years in July and August, they, you know, it's a 50-50 on whether or not they actually come true. The NFL is just such a crapshoot year in and year out. There are a couple of teams and a couple of organizations that have had some consistency at the top, but the rest of the league is always very much sort of a crapshoot. And so it's impossible to predict, but I do think that they are well coached. Now, are they an elite coaching staff? No, but it's the best coaching staff they've had here since 2013 by far. Um, Secondly, their talent overall, and even their depth on their roster is probably as good as it's been uh, in a long time. I mean, maybe 2005, um, you could go back to then, and I don't think they've ever had defensive talent like they have now. Um, but with that said, um, the last time we saw this defense, and we didn't see the defense as we'll see it this year with the you know likes of Jamin Davis and, and William Jackson III, et cetera, which you know, hopefully fills a massive need, although Darby played well last year. The last time we saw it, it got absolutely destroyed in the playoff game um, and gave up 500 yards and was the single biggest reason for the loss in a postseason game. Um, This team still is on shaky ground at the most important position on the field. We don't know what Ryan Fitzpatrick is going to be, and we have no idea, even the people that are positive and optimistic about Taylor Heineke, what he can actually be. Um, you know, over a, a, a real 16 or 17 game season. Um, and then, you know me, I'm not a big schedule guy, but the quarterbacks that they face, I think might be unprecedented. I mean, they essentially, if you consider Dak Prescott a top 10 quarterback, and I think that's a bit of a reach, but they basically play nine games against the top 10 quarterbacks in the league. Now, maybe some of them won't be there when they play them, or maybe some of them will have off years. That's always possible. But it is murderer's row as far as the quarterbacks and just the offensive talent that they're going to face week in and week out. And I think the other teams in the division have improved with the exception of the Eagles, although I'm, I'm not a Jalen Hurts hater. But I think the Giants have a really good roster. And the question mark is obviously Daniel Jones and, you know, Joe Judge. And then the Cowboys roster overall, especially when you consider that they have much more stability at quarterback, is just better than Washington's. 
Yeah, it's really hard to see the division being as bad as it was last season again this season. I mean, even if you don't love the other three teams, it's not going to be as putrid as it was in 2020. The, The path to a division championship can't be as easy this coming season as it was last season. I talked with you at length on your podcast about the quarterback competition, to whatever extent it exists, between Ryan Fitzpatrick and Taylor Heineke. Do you have a theory, though, for why Kyle Allen not only is being totally excluded from the competition, but isn't even being mentioned by Ron Rivera? I mean, that's such a departure from the way that Ron talked about Kyle last December. What do you think is going on here? I have no idea. I mean, you and I talked about this a couple of weeks ago on my podcast. I don't have an answer for that one. It was just odd the way he was completely omitted from the conversation about, you know, uh, minicamp and OTAs and it's going to... Taylor Heineke and, and Ryan Fitzpatrick. It was as if I, Allen didn't even exist. I don't know. Was it because he wasn't healthy enough to go through everything they wanted him to go through or they're worried about him being at 100% when training camp begins? I, I don't know because I know for a fact Scott Turner really likes him. I mean, that's why they traded a fifth so that he didn't end up signing with somebody else last year. Um but maybe it's possible that they just like the other two guys a lot more now. You know, after seeing Ryan Fitzpatrick, after acquiring him um, uh, and in and, and free agency, after seeing Taylor Heineke come out, no TAs in minicamp and apparently looked really good, maybe they just came to the conclusion that they really do like Kyle, but he's not at their level. Yeah, that makes sense uh, because not a lot else does. It's very strange. We've seen Ron do this, like kind of talk one way about someone and then totally flip on that someone. We kind of saw it with Dwayne Haskins as last season went on. And uh, he, at least publicly, he's like totally turned on Kyle Allen. When it comes to quarterback, we know that Washington tried to trade for Matthew Stafford, but got outbid by the Rams. We know that Washington liked Justin Fields to at least a certain extent, but Chicago traded up to take Fields. Knowing what we now know in terms of what each guy went for, do you wish that Washington had done more to try to get either guy, or are you good with how Washington ultimately has handled the quarterback position this offseason? No, I would have I would have really gone for Matt Stafford. And they did. They did. They just got beat. Um, and, you know, that's one of those things, remember, in the past where Dan wouldn't have been beaten, you know, certainly on a, on a free agency thing. Um I think if this team had Matt Stafford, they would be the clear-cut favorite to win the division, and they would be in the top five um, teams in the NFC championship odds. I think he would make that much of a difference. So I would have loved to have seen Stafford here. Um, I just have always been a Stafford fan, and I think he's been very underrated, and I think a big part of it has been the teams that he's been on and the coaching staffs that he's played for, but whatever. Um, you know, the other guys that they were rumored, rumored to have had interest in, whether it was Darnold or Carr or Mariota, and I'm sure I'm forgetting one or two other guys, to me is just the clear-cut indication that with Heineke and Allen, they felt like they needed a legitimate upgrade and a so- solid choice for a guy to start 16 games this year. And the fact they went with the older guy after failing on an attempt on the younger guys tells me that there's no way they didn't uh, acquire Ryan Fitzpatrick um, for the purposes of him competing for the starting job. They wanted to remain competitive this year with a decent team, and they wanted veteran leadership like they had last year, 
with more ability, more physical ability, because they think they can win nine games or 10 games and maybe compete for, for a division title. Um, but not if they had had, you know, instability at quarterback or had to trot out Allen and or Heineke, who Al, they, neither one of them has been able to stay healthy in their very brief opportunities. Yeah, and that's the thing. You can like Heineke and or Allen. You can be intrigued by Heineke and or Allen, but you can't have certainty with Heineke or Allen. So you needed someone who's going to provide some more certainty. Fitzpatrick, I mean, it sounds funny saying this, but he does provide more certainty. He's such an interesting guy to look at, Kevin, because he's played at a pretty high level the last few seasons. Like, to me, the lazy take is, oh, it's Ryan Fitzpatrick, journeyman, you know, loser. He's never been to the playoffs. He bounces around the league. He throws a bunch of picks. Like, yeah, there's validity to some of that, but he's had his best three seasons over the last three seasons. What kind of a season do you expect from Fitzpatrick? Like, do you see him giving Washington a substantial upgrade at quarterback off what we had last year? I do. I, I definitely do. But that's not saying much because they obviously have struggled at the position here for a few years and played four guys last year. And the best guy they had out there basically was physically limited in a significant way. Um, but I think this is a, a big upgrade over last year, massive upgrade over last year. But, you know, we also know what he's been through much of his career. I totally agree with you. I don't see why people wouldn't focus on the last two or three years um, when he, by the way, was with a younger team and last year a really good young defensive team and a different coaching staff and more weapons, etc. cetera. Um, and he didn't get benched, just to be clear, last year. Not that you said this, but I think a lot of people say, well, he got benched for, for Tunga Vailoa. No, he didn't. The, the organization made a decision to start the Tunga Vailoa era last year. I think if they had left Fitzpatrick in there for 16 games, they would have been in the postseason. And he would have been a postseason quarterback last year. Um, but I think they will be better. But we also know that he is capable of having big dud games and big dud moments. And why? Because he is a risk taker. He is, you know, he's got a lot of Rex Grossman in him. <laughs> and he's better than Rex Grossman, I think, but... He doesn't, you know, he's got a very short memory and he will throw it into tight windows and give receivers a chance. And there have been many a back-breaking, you know, interceptions in the end zone down four with 30 seconds to go after he had driven him 80 yards. So we'll see. But I think they should be a more dynamic offense with him and with their addition, certainly. Yeah. It's funny. This year is the 10-year anniversary of the Rex Grossman season, and uh, there were there were some highs with Sexy Rexy, but of course there were some brutal lows. And Fitzpatrick, to me, Fitzpatrick is like Rex Plus. Like I think he's a better version of Rex. Yeah, I agree. But, but there is that Rex Grossman element to Fitzpatrick, no doubt. Uh, final question. So with Washington's defense, and you alluded to this, there's being a very good defense, and then there's being a truly elite defense. We saw in the playoff loss to Tampa Bay that Washington's defense, while much improved and while quite good last season, wasn't elite with the way Tom Brady carved up that defense. Do you see Washington's defense getting to that next level this coming season? No, I think it could take that jump. It has the talent to take that jump. They are well-coached defensively with the head coach and the defensive coordinator having years of success as defensive minds. Um, they took a massive jump last year, but you know, 
their best games were against teams that had really bad quarterbacking situations for the most part. Um, you know, take away that second half against Roethlisberger, and we didn't know it at the time, but Pittsburgh was really on the verge of imploding um, down the stretch. But, you know, it was the Denudos and the Daltons and, you know, the Finleys and, you know, uh, and, the, uh, and, and the Nate Sudfelds um, that they feasted on, the Nick Mullinses that they, they feasted on. And to me, the biggest concern and, and we have to see an improvement. Maybe the return of Ionitis, maybe the upgrade of linebacker with Davis will make all the difference. But they have to become out a more consistent run-stopping team. You cannot be a great defense if you're not a really good run defense. And they weren't a consistent run defense last year. They got run on in big moments last year by several teams. The two games they lost to the Giants, they were run on. Um, and they've got big time backs in the division too, you know, in Elliott and in maybe the biggest return in the division, which is Saquon Barkley. So they're going to have to be more consistent against the run. Hopefully, Ionitis and Jamin Davis, um, you know, in a second year in the system makes all the difference in the world. But look, they got run on in that playoff game. I mean, Leonard Fournette ran through them, uh, to, you know, to the tune of like almost five yards of carry. So, They've got to get better against the run. To be an elite defense, you've got to be a really good run defense. And they they just weren't – they were okay, but against some of the lesser teams they played. Yeah, no, I think that's, uh, that's totally fair. Well, I appreciate your time. Always love talking Washington football team with you. And if Dan Snyder's PR team contacts you, be nice and refer to him as Mr. Snyder, okay? Can you at least do that for him? I, 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 if they ever actually did contact me with anything positive, I would definitely <laughs> respond to them that way. But usually when I hear from them, it's, it's not very positive. <laughs> <laughs> I don't really care anymore, and we shouldn't. I, I, I'm with but, you. Uh, the, the, the upcoming season, Al, I think you and I talked about it a few weeks ago, but I think it's legitimately the most optimistic if you're a fan like we are of the team that we could be that we've been going into a season since 2013. Yeah, you know, I mean there was optimism going into 2016 off the division championship in 15, but I, I think there is legit reason for hope here. I think we're always trying to walk that line right of like you don't want to be a sap and you don't want to you know fall prey to oh they're back, you know, everything's good again and it's like no and then they they go right back to losing double digits, but with the way things are set up, with the construction of the roster, I think there is reason to feel like, hey, at least from a football operation standpoint, this thing is in a good place. And we know that things can unravel, but there's a lot to like here with what's happened from a football perspective over the last 12 months. So I'm with you on that. And hopefully the optimism is rewarded this coming season. Yeah. And it's very possible they could be a much improved football team and not be a playoff team. Yeah. Yeah. You know, but that could still really bode well for 22 and 23, et cetera. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, 100% right. Kevin, appreciate it, man. Thank you. Keep up the good work, Al. I'll talk to you soon. All right. So the Orioles, a very fitting end to their pre All Star break portion of the season. A sweep, a three game sweep to the Chicago White Sox at Oriole Park at Camden Yards. 12-1 loss on Friday night, 8-3 loss on Saturday, 7-5-10 inning loss on Sunday afternoon. So the O's at the All-Star break 
have the worst record in the American League at 28 and 61, with the worst run differential in the American League at minus 138. Yes, the, the O's have been outscored by 138 runs on the season. You know, the O's began the season with a halfway decent record. The O's improved to 15 and 16 with a 6-0 win at the Seattle Mariners on May 5th. Cinco de Mayo was a victorious day for the O's in many ways. That was the day on which John Means threw his no-hitter. But the O's, since the John Means no-hitter win at the Mariners, have gone 13-45. and Yes, 45 losses in 58 games for the O's to wrap up the pre-All-Star break portion of their season. So I was thinking about this. The biggest negative for the Orioles, to me, has been the lack of development by the Orioles' young starting pitchers. And that was something that really jumped out in this series against the White Sox. Look, the O's are a tanking team. The O's are a rebuilding team. I talk about these things all the time. I could not care less about their record or run differential. I bring those things up just as a way to provide context to our conversation, but I really don't get caught up at all in the Orioles' record this season or the Orioles' run differential this season. What I care about this season are the development of younger players and the play of potential trade chips who can help you get more younger players. And by the way, speaking of potential trade chips, Trey Mancini in this 7-5-10 inning loss to the White Sox at Camden Yards on Sunday afternoon, pinch, game-tying, two-out, two-run, opposite field homer to right field off White Sox closer Liam Hendricks to tie the game at four. What a shot there by Mancini, who will be on display in the home run derby at Coors Field in Denver on Monday night. But specific to the development of younger players for the Orioles so far this season, the O's do have multiple young position players who have done well or at least showed signs of growth. Cedric Mullins has been outstanding, and he's an all-star. Should be a starter for the American League, but still, he's an all-star. Ryan Mountcastle has been so much better lately. Austin Hayes has been excellent defensively as a corner outfielder and has been much better offensively here lately. In fact, Hayes in the 7-5, 10-inning loss to the White Sox at Camden Yards on Sunday afternoon. Big game. He had an outstanding outfield assist in throwing out Yoan Moncada at third base from right field on a flyout throwout double play to end the top of the first. Hayes smashed a first pitch two-run opposite field homer to right field in the bottom of the first, and Hayes worked a one-out nine-pitch walk in the bottom of the 10th despite having been down in the count at one point one, two. So when it comes to the development of young position players for the Orioles, I actually think there are some things to really like about this season so far. But when it comes to the Orioles' young pitchers, this season so far has been a complete disaster. And it doesn't mean that all of these players are lost causes, but it does mean that so far this season, these guys have been flops. You start with Keegan Aiken. He and the Orioles' 8-3 loss to the White Sox at Camden Yards on Saturday, a sixth consecutive bad outing. He relieved the Orioles' starter in the game, Thomas Eshelman, who himself was bad. Four runs in two innings. Aiken allowed four runs in four and a third innings. Now, he did have six strikeouts, but Aiken now has allowed 30 earned runs in 25 and a third innings over his last six games. He now has a 7.54 ERA and 168 whip over 12 games this season, including seven starts. 
So far this season, the O's have recalled Aiken from AAA Norfolk of having optioned him to AAA Norfolk all the way back on March 26. Remember, he was considered likely to make the Orioles season opening rotation, but he was so bad in the exhibition season that the O's optioned him to AAA Norfolk on March 26. Aiken, a second round selection in the 2016 draft. This is his age, 26 season. Dean Kramer has had a highly disappointing season so far. In fact, the O's on June 25th optioned Kramer to AAA Norfolk, marking a second demotion for Kramer this season as the O's had optioned him to Norfolk on May 26 and then recalled him on June 14th. Kramer over 12 starts at the major league level this season, an ERA of 7.25, a whip of 161. He had the worst outing that any Orioles pitcher has had so far this season. 9-0 loss to the Toronto Blue Jays in Buffalo on June 24th. Six runs, and he recorded just one out. The O's acquired Kramer from the Los Angeles Dodgers in the Manny Machado trade July 2018. This season is Kramer's age 25 season. Jorge Lopez, he was the Orioles starting pitcher on Friday night, that 12-1 loss to the White Sox at Camden Yards. Two runs in four innings. He gave up eight hits, a walk, and a wild pitch. Did have four strikeouts, but Lopez on the season, over 18 starts, an ERA of 595, a whip of 163. O's got Lopez off waivers from the Kansas City Royals in August 2020. This is his age 28 season. Bruce Zimmerman, the O's on June 18th put Zimmerman on the 10-day injured list, retroactive to June 15th with left biceps tendonitis. We haven't seen him since. He has an ERA of 483 and a whip of 147 over 12 games, including 11 starts this season. The O's got Zimmerman from the Atlanta Braves in the July 2018 trade that sent Kevin Gaussman and Darren O'Day to the Braves. This season is Zimmerman's age 26 season. And then there's John Means, the ace, the man who was steamrolling toward being an American League All-Star. John Means, over his first eight starts this season, had an ERA of 121 and a whip of 0.71. He threw that aforementioned no-hitter. Again, Cinco de Mayo, the 6-0 win at the Seattle Mariners. But Means then struggled to varying degrees in three of his next four starts. And the O's on June 6th put Means on the 10-day injured list with a left shoulder strain. And we haven't seen him since. This is John Means' age 28 season. And even with him having been, by far, the biggest positive for Orioles pitching so far this season. You're not even in a good place with that guy right now, with him having not pitched in the majors over the last month and a half. Spencer Watkins was good for a second time in as many starts. Watkins started the 7-5 10 inning loss to the White Sox at Camden Yards on Sunday afternoon. One run in four into third innings. The O's on June 30th selected the contract of Watkins from AAA Norfolk, but this is a guy who was taken by the Detroit Tigers in the 30th round of the 2014 MLB draft. This is where we're at with Orioles starting pitching. Spencer Watkins is having to be leaned upon. And understand, even with Watkins allowing one run in four into third innings on Sunday afternoon, uh, that outing marked an Orioles starting pitcher not completing at least six innings for a 16th consecutive game and for the 32nd time in 34 games. I mean, my goodness, six innings. That's not asking a ton. And yet an Oriole starter has not completed at least 16 innings in each of the last 16 games and in 32 of the last 
34 games. This is, again, the biggest negative so far this season, that the likes of Aiken and Kramer and Lopez and Zimmerman have not been better, okay? John Means has been great, but Means now is injured. So he, to me, is in a different category. But those other guys, these potential young building blocks, especially Aiken, Kramer, and Zimmerman, uh, those guys have not been up to the task. And Aiken and Kramer especially have been brutally bad. Now, again, you don't write these guys off. This is what this season is for. These guys need to keep pitching. These guys need to keep developing. And hopefully by the end of the season, you're seeing improvement. But for darn sure, we haven't seen improvement so far this season from those guys. So we had the start of the 2021 MLB draft on Sunday night. The O's had the fifth overall pick, and they took outfielder Colton Kowser out of Sam Houston State. Uh, Jim Callis, senior writer for MLB Pipeline, one of the best MLB draft guys out there, he called Kowser the second best college position player available in the draft. It is interesting, Orioles Executive Vice President and General Manager Mike Elias has taken a college position player in the first round in each of the last three MLB drafts. Elias took catcher Adley Rutschman, the phenom, with the first overall pick in the 2019 MLB draft. Elias took outfielder Heston Kerstad with the number two overall pick in the 2020 MLB draft. And Elias now has taken outfielder Colton Kowser with the number five pick in the 2021 MLB draft. The O's farm system is getting better. That is another positive from the pre-All-Star break portion of the season. Baseball America on June 7th released the publication's top 100 prospects list. The O's had five of the top 90 prospects in baseball, four of the five first-round picks. Uh, Adley Rutschman, the number two prospect in baseball. Uh, Starter Grayson Rodriguez, the number 11 prospect in baseball and the number one pitching prospect in the sport. The O's took Rodriguez with the number 11 pick in the 2018 MLB draft. D.L. Hall was the number 44 prospect in baseball. Another pitcher, the O's took him with the number 21 overall pick in the 2017 MLB draft. Heston Kerstad, the number 78 prospect in baseball. And shortstop slash third baseman Gunnar Henderson, the number 90 prospect in baseball. The O's took him in the second round of the 2019 MLB draft. So hopefully sooner rather than later, we're adding Colton Kowser to this list of promising Orioles prospects. It's interesting with the Orioles in the MLB draft. The O's for like a 10-11 year stretch were atrocious when it came to first round picks. The O's from 1999 through 2009 had an abysmal run of first round picks in MLB drafts. Nothing was worse than the Orioles 1999 draft which truthfully is one of the worst drafts any team has ever had. The O's in the 1999 draft had four of the top 23 picks, five of the top 34 picks, and seven of the top 50 picks. And the only true hit out of all of those picks was shortstop Brian Roberts out of the University of North Carolina at pick number 50. So the only true hit was the last of all those picks, uh, interestingly, that pick, the compensation pick for the O's, for them losing Rafael Palmero in free agency to the Texas Rangers. But Orioles' first-round picks from 1999 through 2009 included, in 2004, Rice pitcher Wade Townsend, who, what, exactly, 2005 high school catcher Brandon Snyder, he went to Westfield High School, by the way, in Chantilly, Virginia, 2006 
New Jersey prep school third baseman Billy Rowell. 2007 was Georgia Tech catcher Matt Wieters. But 2008, San Diego pitcher Brian Mattis, who was terrible as a starter, was decent for a little while as a reliever, but he was by no means a success as a pick, especially where he was taken, number four overall. And then one of the worst ever, 2009 California high school pitcher Matt Hobgood with the number five overall pick. The O's have gotten better when it comes to the draft in recent years. But yes, a whole lot more is needed, especially from a pitching standpoint, given what we've seen so far this season. All right, my friends, that will do it for you and me for now. Keep the feedback coming. You can tweet me at Al Galdi. You can email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. Remember, this is a vacation week with vacation in quotation marks. So just three shows this week as opposed to the usual five. Episode 100 now is in the books. Thank you again for all of your support since this podcast started back in late February. Uh, Really has meant a lot. It's been a ton of fun doing this, and we're just going to try to keep this thing going one episode at a time. You know how in sports people always say one game at a time? We take this podcast one episode at a time, and we'll see where it all takes us. So have a great rest of your Monday, and have a great Tuesday, and I'll talk to you on Wednesday. He's super smart.